city stuff. We trust you with the financial stuff. God, we just need we just need some wisdom, some direction, and some miracles. In the name of Jesus. Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you find somebody? Shake their hand. Say hello. Introduce yourself to them. Even if you know them. Hello, hello, there we go. Okay. All right, sit down and be quiet. <clears throat> sit down and be quiet, this is my time. You're probably asking yourself, when is your time? If this is my time, when is your time? Here's the answer. You don't have time. <laughs> um, I did want to... Um, I did want to ask this question. I try to remember to ask it more often than I do, and I don't. Um, but is there something that's in your head, in your mind, your spirit, you're just saying, you know, I'd like to answer to this question. Um, something that, that's been processed, you've been processing, you've been reading about something going on, you're just saying, I just need maybe process this a little bit. Anybody got something? Yes, ma'am?
Okay, I'll do both of those, and if you guys have another term, we can discuss those too. Uh, first one, critical race theory. Critical race theory is basically the idea that um, all white people are bad. It starts with the premise that all white people are bad, and, and, yeah, and, and, and inherently evil. In fact, there's some groups that are even saying uh, that Satan has taken over the white race, which is really interesting because there's, there's a plethora of white races. <clears throat> which one? <laughs> you know, which one you take over? And here's the thing with me. is like I've got Indian blood in me, lots and lots of Indian blood in me. So which part of me is demonic and which part is not? Which part is bad, which part is not? Um, critical race theory assumes that um, there is a basic starting premise that all white people not only are bad, but they're all prejudiced too. That you cannot be white without having uh, prejudice um, at your core. It also assumes that if you are, if someone sees you as white, then you are white. Yeah, it doesn't matter what you are if somebody sees you. In fact, there's, there's some people I watch online that are, that are not white. They're uh, black guys, and they, but one of them is much whiter than the other one, so he's considered racist, but the other one is not. Right. And they talk about this, and they say this is stupid, but that's the way it is. So, so it is a Marxist tool that is used to divide a society, in this case an entire nation, and if the predominant uh, uh, race in this United States was not the American, was not the white or Caucasian race, they would pick whatever was the majority race, and that would then become the... Uh, Incredibly racist. Yeah. Think of that for the Jews. Both yeah. Jews are white, but that had nothing to do with it. It had to do with the fact that they were Jews. So they used critical race theory on the yeah. Jews. Yeah, critical, so, critical race theory is greatly dependent upon the country. Yeah. Um, the uh, Bolsheviks used critical race theory, but it wasn't against white people because everybody was white. Um, it, was, it was against the specific bloodline that you came from. Okay? Uh, this is, it's, it's really not a race issue, it's a Marxist issue, it's a control issue, and it's, um, it's, it has nothing to do with race, it's, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with uh, control and dividing and, and, and hurting our country, trying to destroy our country. There are other races like Asians that are considered by critical race theory adjacent white. Yeah. Yeah, and that can be pretty much anybody that you, you... You know, here's the thing. When you start doing critical race theory, you can attach anybody to almost anything. I mean, and they become the bad guys. They become the evil. <clears throat> because it really isn't about race. It, it has not been about race from the very beginning. So... Um, yeah, humans. Human beings. Yeah. You know, you, you guys have heard me pick on uh, BLM quite a bit. Uh, as a Christian, as a Christian, all lives matter, okay? It doesn't matter. Uh, red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in his sight. Um, you can't be a Christian and have a problem with somebody else because of skin color. You cannot be a Christian under those circumstances, okay? BLM has nothing to do with uh, Black Lives Matter. Because if it is the case, why is shooting a black cop okay? All right? BLM has been a, a racist Marxist movement from the beginning, it never was designed to help black people and to pull people up, black people up and give them breaks and all this kind of stuff. Plus, think about this. Where are most of the riots that BLM starts, where are most of those riots happening? In downtown inner cities that are predominantly black and they're destroying businesses, burning them to the ground that are owned by black people. How is that, how is that helping that? 
One of, one of the other things that really got me, since, since you brought it up, one of the things that got me was when, <clears throat> when Atlanta, Georgia, which is populace-wise, highest percentage of black people in any uh, metropolitan city in the world, yeah. right? What did I say? Well, I mean black, yeah. So, yeah, no, that's where I'm going. <laughs> Atlanta, the the um, the All Star Game was going to be played in Atlanta, right? So then Georgia made some uh, some moves. Conservatives in Georgia made some moves to change the election voter laws in Georgia to make them uh, more restrictive, so that there would be IDs. You know, IDs for everything else we use on the planet. Every country has ID systems and everything. But they said you, to vote, you have to have an ID. So the, um, the, the leftists, not, not pro-black, obviously, but they act like they are, they say that they are, they come into Atlanta and they say, you're restricting uh, black voters by making these laws, and they put pressure on all these other groups. The NBA, so the MLB, uh, Major League Baseball, says, okay, we'll protest these voter laws that are restrictive to black people, move them, the All-Star game to Denver. One of the widest cities in the United States. And, by the way, have more restrictive voter laws than Georgia. And the, the handful of mind-numbed people, leftists, and even part of the black community in, in uh, Atlanta, went nuts, saying, yes, this is right. We, this Atlanta is so uh, racist, and these laws are so racist. Let's move it to Denver. And, and most of the black people I know are going, what? <laughs> Do you know how many hundreds of millions of dollars were just taken away from the black community in Atlanta and, and surrounding Georgia? Do you know how much hundreds of millions of dollars were taken from, from uh, black businesses, black restaurants, black-owned restaurants, business halls? And, and everybody applauded it. It's one, of the, it's one of the stupidest, if you want to call it this, and I don't like to use these terms because I think they're used wrong, but I think it's one of the most racist things that I have seen in 20 years. And the black community in Atlanta applauded it because they've been told that by the liberals. <clears throat> That's true. Well, so, so these kind of things are just stupid. Intersectionality, intersectionality is um, whatever, whatever you can um, add to the table, uh, anything you can bring to you to a conversation or to some kind of job situation or cultural situation or anything that gives you, um, let me use the term points. It's not really what it is, but, but points, okay? So if you start on a spectrum... And, it, and the spectrum gets very muddy very quickly. It depends on who you talk to, which community you're talking to, okay? If you start on the spectrum, I'm a, I'm a 50-year-old white male raised in middle-class America. Went to college. Well, I failed out the first time, but I eventually went back. Let's not count that. I have zero points, okay? One step away from that, a uh, white woman... My wife, raised in almost similar circumstances, she has a few more points than I do, okay? And as you go down this scale, anything that you can add to it that gives you more uh, variations of this means you can stack points, okay? 
So if Linda, um, if Linda was gay, she gets a lot of points for that. Okay? Um, just being a woman, being gay, she gets a lot of points. Yes, ma'am. Well, let's just leave you by yourself first. Yes, you do have points because you're Hispanic. You do have points because you're a woman. You do have a points because you are a minority, but you're also from immigrant minority status. You do get points for all those things. But you got way too many other things that cancel those points out. Yeah. I, w I, wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say Russell is your biggest issue. I would say your biggest issue is Christian and conservative. That's more important than Russell. Okay. Um, here's, some more, here's some more intersectionality, okay? Um, if you are of some different race, and, the right, and each of the races have different point systems, right? What we're finding out even recently is that Asians don't have near as many points as um, not Hispanics, but Latins. Not Mexicans, but Latin Americans. Immigrant Latin Americans. Um, uh, Asians aren't as high on the scale. How do we know that? Harvard started prejudicing against Asians to get into Harvard because they had too many Asians. Well, has anybody ever just slowed down to think maybe they're trying harder than the other Americans? When, when you see a, 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 an Asian five-year-old playing classical music on a violin, maybe, just maybe, they tried harder. Right? That doesn't matter. Asians are now, they've been, they used to be up there, but now they're being pulled down. If you take, uh, if you take let's say, female, Latin, or female, black, homosexual, or I would say transgender is starting to move up even more than homosexual. Transgender is going, I, not just that I'm gay, but that I, I, I identify as the opposite sex. So you get a lot of points for that kind of stuff. And then when you come in contact with somebody else in any other setting, your point system gives you power and authority over that other person. You have the ability to give your opinion. That other person no longer has the ability to give an opinion. And it doesn't matter what it is. And the more, inter the more of those elements of intersectionality that you can add to the table, you can delete somebody else. Um, you guys know this. One of my favorite people is Candace Owens. She is a conservative black female. She gets almost canceled out and no points whatsoever because she is conservative. Her conservatism overrides um, female and black, overrides that. And even if she was gay, black, female, her conservatism and her evangelicalism override that completely.
Okay, equality, let me, let me simplify it really quick. Equality is we all have the same opportunities, and the key word is opportunity, okay? Um, I, I have the same opportunity as a 50-year-old white man. I, I have theory. See, I don't even think that you, don't, you can't even really apply it across age groups because I don't think my 25-year-old son has the same country to grow up in that I did when I was 25, I had a lot more abilities and freedoms, not personally, but opportunities to accomplish stuff as a 25-year-old male in our country than my son does, because we've, we've taken a lot of rights away. We take a lot of freedoms away. Our economy is, is not designed for freedoms now. It used to be much more wide open. Now it's not. But that considering, um, equality says we're born in America. You have the same ability as anybody else or the same opportunity as anybody else in America, Okay. You say, well, I was born in the inner city and I couldn't go to college. Inner city kids in college have a lot more opportunity to go to college than I did. Okay? Uh, I had to pay for all mine. All right? So that's taken off the table. Opportunity is the concept of equality. You're born in America, you have opportunity. You figure out what that is. You figure out how to do that. Seize the day. Do something. Don't just sit around and smoke pot. Do something. Okay? That's, that's equality. Equity says that I must have the same outcome that you have. That's different. Okay? Let me use me as an example. I went to college. I went to the Navy, and then I went to college the following year. Okay? The university. I didn't like things like classes, books, studying, stuff like that. It seemed to kind of limit me. And so I failed almost all my classes. Uh, Aaron and I were talking about this a couple days ago, or sorry, yesterday. So I passed racquetball. I passed swimming. That was about it. So, so, so equity says the other person doesn't matter. Doesn't matter my race. Doesn't matter my background. Doesn't matter anything. The other person doesn't matter about that. That we must have equal outcomes. When you add intersectionality to that, now you're adding in. If they have any points on the intersectionality system, then their outcome should be guaranteed higher than mine or equal to mine. Okay? Well, I have no problem with that because I failed out. Is that what you want? Is that the equality? Is that the equity you want? But the equity they're saying is if somebody else, it doesn't matter if anybody else graduates, then they should have the right to have that degree also. That's equity of outcome, not equality of opportunity. So if I get a job and you get a job, we should both get paid the same thing. And specifically because you're a woman, it should be guaranteed that you get paid the same that I do. Right? But let's take pastoring. If you put a resume in to be the pastor and I put a resume in to be the pastor, I'm much more qualified than you are. Okay? Not because we don't know the Bible, but I have education that is backed up with this. I have 30 years experience. I've grown churches from nothing to larger churches. I've, I've experienced that can be proved. But according to equity, you should get paid the exact same thing, and you should be potentially hired for that position of pastor, regardless that I have uh, more qualifications for that job. Do you see what I'm saying? Equity of outcome. Guys, equity of outcome is a, is a horribly tragic thing for our country, and we're embracing it like crazy. 
Why should you have the same outcome that I do when I may work a lot harder? This is one of the things when it comes to uh, women don't get paid as much as men. I don't think that's as true as what society says because there's so many other factors in this. If you want a more detailed explanation of this, look up Thomas Sowell and look up um, uh, gender equality and pay. That man will blow your mind with how much he, statistics he puts out about this. He says there's way too many factors for women to men. You take a 50-year-old man and a 50-year-old woman, they have not necessarily had the same path to get to that job, to get to that pay. Now, if they've had the exact same path, of course they should be paid the same. In fact, this is the way we do it around here when we're paying staff, okay, pastoral staff. We have the job description and we have a salary for it. That doesn't change depending on who we hire. Because the conversation over the years of me being a pastor, the conversation has come up. Let's take Krista, for example, when we hired her. Well, she's a single girl straight out of college. She doesn't have a lot of experience. Um, she can, you know, she, we can pay her a lot less. Well, why would we pay her less? This is the job. This is what the job pays. It doesn't matter whether we hire a guy or a girl. It doesn't matter whether they're single. It doesn't matter whether they're married. See, if that's the argument, what if we hire somebody with 12 kids? We can't pay them enough according to that scale. Right? So the outcome, equality of outcome makes no sense. Guys, it's the quality of opportunity that is important. You have the opportunity. I look at young guys today. I, I just got a, a picture the other day from uh, somewhere in one of the stands. I won't say it because we're videoing. Somewhere in one of the stands, one of our missionaries sent me a picture of Logan. You guys remember Logan Rojas? We supported him. He went to Nepal. He is in one of the stand countries right now. Okay? And they were talking about it. They bragged and said, this kid is amazing. This kid is wonderful. You know, he is 22 years old and has done more in the first four years of him getting out of high school than most people do their entire life. This kid is moving. He is headed for the direction God wants for him. He's gonna, I mean, he's already learned uh, Nepali and Russian because he wants to be a missionary. So, so if, if somebody else comes along, take me. At 20, not at 22, by 22 I was a youth pastor, I was doing things, that kind of stuff. But take me at 20 and him at 20. We, I shouldn't be uh, hired to be a missionary or brought into the missions organization the way he was. He'd worked a lot harder at it by the time he was 20. Now by the time he's 22, he's, you take 95% of 22-year-olds, they're not in the same category he is. He has worked hard, so they should not be guaranteed the same outcome. They have had the same opportunities that he has. He didn't have extra opportunities to do stuff. I, the day he came in at 18 years old and he said, I want to be a missionary. I'm going to be working with this group, Acts. Will, you, will your church consider supporting me? He went to like 200 churches and asked that question. When he came to us, I'm like, Logan, let's talk. I sense something about you different from the Holy Spirit first. But secondly... You're doing something. At 18, you're wanting to go to Nepal to be a missionary? You see what I'm saying? Every other 18-year-old had basically the same opportunity. It didn't matter. Boy, girl. In fact, we talked to a girl about three months after that, and we're going to send her, and then she dropped out of the program. Our church was going to support her too. Okay? 
Boy, girl, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what color you are, anything. If somebody comes in there with that plan and laid it out the same way Logan did, our church would have supported them. And they would have gone to Nepal or wherever they went. You see what I'm saying? You got We should have the same opportunity. Guys, not the same guaranteed outcome. The same guaranteed outcome guarantees what? Laziness. Ex- expectation. Entitlement. Guarantee of outcome is entitlement. We all played the same game. One team, one, one, one team lost, but we all got trophies. Well, the next time, that, that other team's not even going to try. We rolling around in the dirt and picking worms. Right? Anything else? <clears throat> no other questions? Nothing? All righty. Yeah, in so many ways. So there is a... Um, there is a uh, there is a podcast that you can go listen to. There's actually a bunch of podcasts about this. Prager has a few podcasts about this, talking about what's going on in Israel, the stuff that's happening there. Um, there is um, I, I saw part of a podcast yesterday or today, something about this New York Times reporter Bobby something B A B I, um, and she was Jewish and she was talking about this. She's a hardcore liberal that kind of started having some eye opening moments because of this. Um, but there's one specifically, uh, Anani, Anani, she's from Somalia, uh, I can't think of her name, but go to Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson interviews, but she's also got her own stuff on YouTube, but you can go to Jordan Peterson, her name is Ahanani or Anani, something like that, and, um, and she's from Somalia, and she wrote a book about this. And man, she is being slammed. And, she, and her book is not about Jerusalem. Her book is about the Muslim migrants into Europe and how they're, they're, it's destroying women's rights in Europe. Because a woman can't walk down the street in some neighborhoods that she used to could because it's overrun by Muslims who have a Sharia law mentality and also the rape context for Muslim immigrants is off the charts. They, they, don't, they have no care for women. They don't, they have, they have, it's more than no respect. They have disrespect for women. They see them as a piece of trash to be raped anytime they want to. And this is changing the face of Europe. She writes a book about it and she gets slammed for it as some kind of uh, racist. She, she's a black Somalian that's being called racist. It's, our, country, our, our world has gone so bizarre. Um, but she has some really good stuff about this, talking about Israel and some of these other things too. Guys, the biggest thing that, that is going to be happening, you guys understand we just had a changeover in prime minister yesterday in Israel. This is extremely important. And the evangelical world is already trying to come out and say, this is a great thing. This new guy is, is just as good as Netanyahu and just as strong. He's not. He is extremely liberal and he believes in giving up land. This is very dangerous for the world. It is dangerous for the United States of America because uh, Netanyahu was a hawk. He was strong. He, 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 all these bombings that are happening, he just light them up, which they should. This, don't buy into this mentality around the world that's so strong. The United Nations is saying, well, if, if Israel bombs the Palestinians, they're the bad guys. 
The, the Israelites have never bombed them unless they have been bombed multiple times. Not just once, but multiple, multiple times. Then the Israelis say, enough's enough. We, then they light up the tunnels, right? And then they get persecuted around the world. Guys, there is an anti... And this is demonic. It's not world politics. There's an anti-Semitic mentality that has always existed. That's why the, the, the Germans could do what they did to the Jews and everybody in the world kept silent, including, guys, America. America was silent for four years. You know why America got involved in World War II. Pearl Harbor. It wasn't because um, uh, they were massacring Jews by the hundreds of thousands at that time. We didn't care. In fact, I think the, the, one of the, the messages that Eisenhower and, um, and uh, Churchill had back and forth was, we really can't do anything. It's not on our shores. And we knew they were murdering the Jews. We act like they, we didn't, but we did. Because there's anti-Semitism that is so strong around the world. And, and it is so strong right now in Israel and all the Arab countries and everything. This is one of the things that it's one of the unseen things that we didn't, we're not giving Trump enough credit for. Trump had actually gotten many Arab countries that would never, ever have conversation with Israel and brought them to the table and was talking peace with Israel. He single-handedly did that. And the moment Biden gets in, all of that goes away, and now they're bombing Israel again. Instantaneously. Because with our, we're even supplying the missiles some of the times. And because Why? The Israelites are God's people, and I'm, I'm preaching a sermon in two weeks, not this week, but the following week, about the demonic and how it's affecting the world and, and Satan and some of his plans and stuff like that. Guys, Satan hates any image of God, so he hates humans. And he definitely hates the humans that God picked as his chosen people, and those are the Israelites. And I've had Christians, many Christians over the years say, well, why should they be the special people? Because God chose them and you didn't get the opportunity to make an opinion. And even if you do, God doesn't care what your opinion is. The Jews are God's chosen people. Deal with it. Okay? You can even go into Romans 9 a little bit and look at that. It's a little bit of predestination in there, which I'm working on a message about that. But it says God can do what he wants. Who are you to, who are you to question that? You're not the potter. The clay doesn't decide what the potter does with the clay. We're just his people. And, and thankfully, he allows us to be his people. He allows me to be grafted in. I'm not Jewish, but he allows me to be grafted in. I should be extremely thankful for that and, and, and never, ever even casually approach an anti-Semitic mentality. Or replacement theology. Or replacement. Replacement theology is anti-Semitic. Replacement theology says all the promises in the Old Testament that are promised to the Jews are now extrapolated over to the church, and the Jews are no longer God's chosen people. The church has replaced them, and now the church are God's chosen people. That's, that's very dangerous theology. And, and by the way, much of evangelical Christianity has embraced that. Here's one of the key words that you'll hear. When you hear the church um, picking on Zionism, that's what's going on. Okay, right? But that's the word that they use. Yeah. All right. Let's jump into this. I've got some good stuff for us. Hebrews chapter 12. I use this, uh, I use this scripture often in funerals, but I, we're not going to look at that part of it. We're going to look at the end part of it. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that easily trips us up. Now look at that. Um, the life of faith. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down. The next sentence. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. So in other words, we are running a race. Sin slows us down, and especially sin that trips us up, which means we have gone farther than slowed down. We have gone all the way to stop. Okay? If you get tripped up, you're stopped. If you get slowed down, uh, you're, you're running, but not at the speed that you were. Why? Because we are running a race, and we need to run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this, we run this race. What is the race that we're talking about? Okay, um, what did you say? Okay, it's the journey. To eternal life is not the race. That's the finish line. That's the goal. The, the race is life. You are in the race right now. You may be running, you may not be running, but you're in the race. That's why when people say, well, I choose like agnosticism, but there's a God and you're in the race. You're in the race. What if I'm not a Christian? Then you're not running, but you're in the race. You're in there. Okay. So we do this. We run with endurance, the race that God has given us, which is this life. We do this. We live this life by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him... So he kind of switches subjects here, but, it, but it's the same mentality. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, which was his race. Okay? So, okay, let me ask this. Jesus dying on the cross, was that the finish line? He says it is finished. Is that the finish line? What's that? That work was finished. What's the finish line for Jesus? The bride, the wedding, when he marries us. That's why he ran the race. That's why he died on the cross, was to marry us. That's the finish line, which, by the way, that's our finish line, too, is the wedding. It's not this verbiage that we've used so long in the church, which is, um, I, I get to heaven. I get to heaven. This is one of the things, I've been critical of this, but this is one of the things that's always bothered me. It was bothering me even as a kid, but I couldn't wrap my mind around it back then. When I was growing up in the church, many, if not most, of the songs that we sang and many often sermons that I heard were all about heaven, okay? The songs, at least half to two-thirds of all southern gospel, country gospel songs are about heaven. Well, here's the problem that I had with that, and I couldn't wrap my mind around it as a kid, but it was almost like... You're just, you just get saved and abide your time until you finally you get to go to heaven. This world is nothing. It's, it's irrelevant. It's unimportant. Except God really spent a lot of time making it. Seven whole days. When you're God and you spend seven whole days, that's a lot. Right? Here, here's, the, here's the equation. If you want to figure it out in God terms, in God times is relation. Um, how long would it take you? That's to put it in reference. God did it in seven days. But just this week, I was listening to Southern Gospel, and I was, I was listening to a bunch of the songs that were coming on were about it. 
And then after that, after the thousand years is over, then we're going to be ruling and reigning with him somewhere. We know it's not in what we would call the new Jerusalem or heaven. Because why? How do we know that? Scripture says we're going to make pilgrimages back there. So we're not going to be in what we kind of traditionally, you know, the streets of gold and stuff like that. We're going to be ruling and reigning somewhere else, and we're going to make pilgrimages back to Jerusalem with the streets of gold. Do you you understand the dynamic there? That means we're going to be doing stuff. That's why I always say that that earth is the boot camp for heaven. We're getting trained here on earth to do and to be and to lead and to priest all the things that Scripture says. Yes, sir. One of the biggest epiphanies for me was in elementary, junior high, somewhere around in there. And we were studying the cell. And um, one of the things, the, all of the elements of the cell, but one of the things that just got me, I don't know why, but mitochondria, I see this in the cell. And I had this epiphany. God knew about mitochondria thousands of years ago, potentially millions of years ago. And we haven't known about mitochondria until the last few hundred years. But we act like we know everything. Right? I'll give you something just to have fun with if you want to study. When I say these things, I ask Linda later, and she's like, no, I'm never going to look that up. But for you that like to think, um, here's some things to process. (laughs) She's not here. She's gone all week. She's not watching. So here's something to process. Is look this up. This, this was another epiphany I had around 2001, 2002. I was doing a sermon series, and I, and I started investigating this for the sermon series, and it, it, and it opened my mind in so many ways. Just look up Google how many new species um, of animals or whatever, new species of anything, were discovered just last year. Just, and then look the, the year before. And then the year, these are new species. This isn't, this isn't a, a bug within a species that grew a third eyeball. That's not what we're talking about. We're saying entire new species. Why do I say that? Because we had figured out evolution 50 years ago. We figured out evolution and, and locked it down, solidified it, 
closed the door, we know everything about evolution, and we're still finding hundreds of new species every year. And most of the time, those completely disagree with evolutionary thought. Think about that, guys. Do you realize how arrogant we are as human beings? How arrogant we are? Okay. So, <clears throat> now Jesus is seating. Oh, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. I'll give you another thing in line with what I was saying there. Here's something when it comes to God and his timing and his planning and everything. You know, I've done this, okay? I'm saying this more from experience than picking at you. But you ever get to the point where you're just frustrated because God is not working by any timeline you need him to? Let's look at this for the human race. It took about um, 6,000 years, uh, 4,000 years for Jesus to get to the point to die on the cross. 4,000 years for God to, to develop and complete. When Jesus says it is finished, this was something that started in Genesis 3. Says that. Says it right there in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the curse for Eve. It says that Jesus is coming. 4,000 years. I'm just throwing that out there. Next time you think God's not moving fast enough. He is, he, is, um, he, is not, uh, he is being patient, according to 2 Peter. He's being patient for what? Us. Because yeah. he doesn't want anybody to perish. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. And when I hear people say, well, if God's a loving God, why is he sending anybody to hell? Your question is so flawed, you don't even realize it. Your question is so twisted and perverted and narcissistic and humanistic that you don't even realize the grandeur of love that you are speaking through with your ignorance. You don't even get it. He loves us so much. He is delaying the eternity of everybody so that you, the one asking the question, can accept his love. And I have no problem saying that to people. That, that throws them off when you, get on, when you get on that bandwagon. They're like, oh, did I irritate you? <laughs> yes, you irritated me. Jesus loves you so much you have no idea. And you're picking on him through his love for you. And you don't even realize it. You don't even realize it. Okay, so here are some questions I have for you. Um, let, let, me, let me read the next two verses. Think of all the hostility he endured for sinful people. Jesus endured this for you and me, right? While he's dying on the cross, while they're, while they're nailing the nails through his hand, he's doing that because he loves you and I. He loves the people nailing the nails through his hands. I, I just saw a Dennis Prager thing the other day, and uh, I, I really, most of the time I agree with, 99, 98% of the time I agree with Dennis Prager. This one, he was so far off the reservation, he doesn't even realize what he's saying. And the reason is because he's Jewish, he's not Christian. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Because he's Jewish. If you, if you're Jewish, you have to be anti-Jesus. But 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 he is pro-Christian. Now here's the thing with this. He was talking about somebody had, had sent in a message that was talking about unconditional love, and he says, "I don't understand unconditional love." 
He said, it doesn't exist. It's a stupid thing. It shouldn't exist. And it goes against everything we know. He said, you're telling me, this is exactly what he said. You're telling me that Jesus unconditionally, or that God, he doesn't use the word Jesus. He said, Do you, you're telling me that God unconditionally loves the pedophile. He said, he doesn't. God doesn't unconditionally love the pedophile. God wants to, to um, send that pedophile to hell. I'm like, Prager, you're, you're exactly the opposite. You, this is the difference between Judaism and Christianity. When Jesus died on the cross and he said it's finished, Paul explains that this was completely motivated by unconditional love. And here's the thing, and Prager cannot wrap his mind around this. Guys, as Christians, you're supposed to emulate and strive for that unconditional love. It doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't even mean sometimes in our limitedness that we would, even, we would consider it possible. But Jesus loves every single person. I had lunch with a guy today that came from Calvinist background. He asked me the questions. He said, tell me the difference. Tell me what makes the Assemblies of God different. I said, he said, you're not Calvinist. I said, no, we're not Calvinist. We're pretty much opposite of Calvinism in all ways. And I said, here's one of the biggest ones is, is unlimited atonement versus limited atonement. Guys, we believe in unlimited atonement. Calvinism believes in limited atonement. Okay, Calvinism be like Lutheran, Methodist, some Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, those are, are Calvinists. We believe in unlimited atonement, which means Jesus died for everybody. He didn't die for the elect or the select or the, the predestined or whatever. Jesus died for everybody. Every human on the planet, Jesus died for. He loves every human on the planet. He loves them unconditionally. But if you cannot wrap your mind around the love that Jesus has for you, you'll never understand unconditional love. And that's where Prager is stuck. He, he, he argued it for 15 minutes. I think it's, um, I think it's on the uh, podcast, Why Won't They Debate? Or Is There No Debate? Or something like that. I think that's the one it's on. Go listen to it. Because he, he, he just attacks, attacks, attacks unconditional love. And the more he talked, the more I thought, that's the point. That's the point. That's, that's, that's what John 3.16 is about. God loves you so much that he was willing to let his son die so that you could live. That's the point. In fact, we see that so much with God's illustrating to these nations that exact thing over and over and over yeah. again. Yeah, and you would think, well, I mean, we could sit here all night and say this Jewish belief you would think would show them Jesus. You would think would show them this, but it doesn't because they, they, they're blind to it. They can't see it. His, his understanding of God <clears throat> ends at Malachi 4, 6, or 4, 4, 4. That's the end of the Old Testament. There is no New Testament. Right. Yeah. Okay, verse 3, think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Now, this is, this is where I'm going with this. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, okay? And, and we're going to start to unpack this, and we're going to really unpack it potentially uh, more next week, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. What is the race? Us, our life. The race you're in is your life. Now, 
going to sound like we're switching gears. We're going to come back to this mostly next week, but I'm going to start the conversation with us right now. Um, <clears throat> my experience a lot from the 70s and in the 80s, a lot of, um, I'll just use one example, just as the example. Uh, Kurt Cobain, you guys know who Kurt Cobain is? Um, he was the, the starter and the singer of Nirvana. Okay, um, yeah, Seattle grunge rock, all that kind of stuff. Okay, again, you guys have known this. I really, really like rock, and um, I like all kinds of rock: heavy metal, grunge, glam rock. I grew up in glam rock. Okay, I was glam rock. Um, <laughs> the reason that I don't listen to that stuff. The reason that I don't, well, not glam rock, but the reason that I don't listen to stuff, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, like bands like Maroon 5 and stuff like that. Guys, I, I love the music, but I can't listen to it because it's, it's, it's horrible, it's perverted, it's anti-God, all this other stuff, and so I can't listen to it. But musically, I love that stuff. I love it. And every now and then, boring Christian contemporary will come out with something that I go, I like that, but it's rare. Because the market, what Christian contemporary music thinks the market is, determines the music being produced. And there's a lot of great bands out there, because I've heard them. I've seen them. I used to bring, when I was a youth pastor, I used to bring bands in all the time. I brought this band in years ago. I'm, I'm going to be speaking so early. You guys have hearing and you know what I'm talking about. But I brought Audio Adrenaline in on one of their first ever concerts. Nobody knew that this little group of punks we're going to turn out to be one of the biggest bands in Christian music. I brought Whiteheart in when they were kind of getting started. Okay? Um, uh, Jeff Moore in the distance. All these guys. I used to bring them all the time. And every now and then there would be a band that would come through that was different. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't last long because the music, the industry d destroyed it. Okay? Or their sound changes. <clears throat> or their sound changes. And so, so what happens is I like the music, but I can't listen to it. Right? Well, this is, this, is, this is one of the things for me that, that, that I um, struggle with, I guess you could say, is Nirvana, one of the, their main album, Simple Minds, probably one of the best albums ever put out by any band. This is my opinion, okay? One of the best albums, definitely one of the best to grunge, if not the best. But I, I don't listen to it because of the content, Okay, but here's the thing: Kurt Cobain worked at it, very gifted, has the ability to develop a melody and do stuff, put music together, does this, gets finally gets the break he's looking for, gets the breakthrough musically, industry-wise, begin to recognize him um, because he was a, he was a force to be reckoned with, and finally the industry said, "We get we better somebody better sign this guy." They sign him, becomes immediately a millionaire, instant. Uh, success overnight, what does he do? Kills, kills himself. Why? He gets, he gets to the top, and, it's, and it's, it isn't. It's not what he thought it was. The same thing, the first time this ever affected me, I was a little kid, and I was watching the old black and white TV show, Superman. My mom was standing there, and she said, that guy killed himself. It floored me. I'm like seven years old. 
My, my mom just told me Superman killed himself. I'm not thinking actor. I'm thinking Superman. Huh? No, no, that's different. That's later. That's a different, that's a different subline. So, literally, I'm thinking, in my head, I'm thinking Superman killed it. Why would Superman? Well, then it dawned on me later. She's talking about the actor guy, right? At a party, went and shot himself in the head. Okay, why? He finally got what he was looking for. Now, here's a thing that I have found over the years. Have you ever really, really wanted something, wanted something, wanted something, and then you got it? Strive for years to get it, and you finally got it? It's not quite as, um, it's not quite as um, fulfilling as you thought it would be, huh? Right? Yeah, first go, well, depending on what it is, you know. Um, but, but it's not quite as fulfilling as you thought. Uh, there's a, there's a letdown mentality, right? Josh and I were talking about this the other day. Um, do you know the statistics, this is statistics, right? We were talking about this for different reasons, um, but talking about letdowns and things like that, statistically, do you know when almost all, overwhelmingly, almost all times that a pastor commits adultery is a specific day? You know what day it is? <laughs> Can only hope. No. So <laughs> it's uh, statistically it's Sunday nights. Any ideas why? It's the letdown. You're tired spiritually drained and tired, which is way bigger than physically drained and tired. You know the difference in emotionally drained and physically drained. Emotionally drained, you'll make mistakes. Physically drained, you just want to go to sleep, right? When you add to it emotionally drained, physically drained, it is very, this makes no sense to you. I'm just telling you some of my existence, but Sunday afternoons, I cannot, like if you invite me over for lunch on Sunday afternoons, I'm going to go to sleep in your house. I can't help it. I don't, I'm not trying to, but if we, we always go out to eat on Sunday afternoons. By the time the meal is over, I'm going, because there is, uh, what, for what I'm doing, it is such a transition that, and it's so subconscious nowadays, I don't feel it, I just know, boom, I'm asleep. I go home, I sit in my chair, and I'm gone. It doesn't matter what I'm watching, okay? Um, but don't take the remote from me, Linda, because I still know I'm watching something. <laughs> but immediately, let down all that stuff. Spiritual letdown, uh, not let, letdown's not the right word, uh, coming down off of it, emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually, you're the weakest when it comes to temptation. Pornography potential goes way up on a Sunday night for a pastor, right? You would think it's the other way around. You just had a great service, especially, you know, the building's packed, people are getting saved, healed, all kinds of stuff. But there's, there's something about that, okay? Um, when you run a major race or marathon, Charles is going to be doing the Ironman coming up, which in case you didn't know, is a big deal, especially when you're as old as Charles is. 
His first Iron Man, he was 50, right? Oh, yeah. they, guys, you know an Iron Man is a, is a triathlon on steroids times 10. Okay? One of the elements of an Iron Man is more than all of the elements of a normal triathlon. And it's still a triathlon. Okay? When you immediately finish with something like that, the first thing you do is you crash for a couple of days. You, you're physically, you... you not a good idea. Um, I mean, think about it. You, you're, you're, you have to recover. Your, your body has to do some things. Um, guys, I've, I've always been an adamant cyclist, mountain biker. I've just recently, last few years, started doing road stuff. But the Tour de France is one of my favorite events of all time. It's, to me, it's better than the Super Bowl. It's better than anything is the Tour de France. And it's coming up in two weeks. So, or ne- next week. Next week. So um, I love it. I watch every moment, of it, which is difficult because they don't show it on real TV or mainstream TV. But I love it. And here's the thing is you talk to these guys. After they're done, it takes, they literally spend like a week just recuperating just, to, just so that they can survive, not so that they can race again, but just so that their body gets put back together. Here's something that I have found, and, and this is what we're going to unpack a little bit more next week, but I want to get it in your head right now. As I, I, think, I think we put a lot of emphasis, way too much emphasis, on achieving certain goals in American Christianity. In America in general, our culture is this way, okay? The, the class that I have at my house on one Sunday night a month, what's the name of it? The Journey. There was a reason why I named it The Journey. We actually changed the name of our church we pastored last to Journey Church. And this was the reason. I think we have way too many milestone mentalities in, in Westernized Christianity. This is, not, this is not around most of the world, but in Western Christianity, we're very moment-oriented. Okay? This moment that this happened. Um, that's why the, the uh, Billy Graham mentality, which is not bad, I'm not picking on Billy Graham, but he had the crusade so that somebody could get saved. Now, Billy Graham, in his early days, was very strong, once saved, always saved, or unconditional eternal security. As he got older, he got farther away from that. In fact, um, the last year that he was alive, he said this. This was his statement. He said, I think probably of all of the people that got saved in my crusades over the years, you think of how many hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people that got saved in Billy Graham crusades over his, over his ministry time frame. He said probably about 5% of those actually stayed saved. Because why? Two reasons. One, two reasons. The first one is they didn't put enough emphasis on the churches that were connecting. And of any group that did, he did a, a lot of that. But he said we didn't put enough emphasis on that because why? The second reason is because discipleship is a lifelong journey. It's not a moment in time. It's not a conversion. As I think we have too much, I'm going I'm to go strictly from our perspective of Pentecostalism. The moment you get saved, the moment you get filled with the Holy Spirit, the moment you get baptized, all this other stuff. This is why I would talk to people, not as much nowadays, but years ago, I would talk to people and they would say, yeah, I'm Pentecostal. And I'd say, really? Tell me about your Pentecostal experience. Well, you know, I was filled with the Holy Spirit and I spoke in tongues on this day. How much of you, this is my question to them, how much have you spoken tongues or prayed in the Spirit or prayed in tongues since then? Blank stare. Why would I need to do that? I spoke in tongues 
20 years ago. And this is what I was picking on a little bit Sunday. The reason is because in our Assembly of God theology, tongues is the evidence of. It's not the empowerment, so why do you need it? You've been proved, you proved you're Pentecostal. Why do you need to pray in tongues anymore? Because we don't read all the scriptures about it, and we, and we had it theologically wrong. Guys, we're, we're too much about a day and time instead of the journey. That's why I call my class the journey. We're on a journey. You're on a spiritual journey. You're on a relational journey. You're on a biblical journey. You're on a prayer journey. You can break all these things down. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Uh, part of my uh, doctoral thesis was this subject. I talked about um, uh, that, if, that if tongues is the evidence of baptism of the Holy Spirit, to me that's the plane is landing. You're done. Journey's over. Ride's over. Get off the plane. Go do what you got to do. But if praying in tongues is the actual empowerment, it's how you're powered, it's how the motor revs up, it's, it's how you get stronger, it's how you get stronger, stronger, build up, that's the plane taking off. Because Why? Why do I need to pray in the Spirit? Because I'm heading somewhere. I'm going somewhere. Why do I need the power of the Holy Spirit? Because I need to say no to sin. I need to, uh, to understand God's Word. I need this. My, somebody at, at my workplace, probably our children's pastor, needs Jesus. So I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? Are you tracking with me? Why do I pray in the Spirit? Because somebody I've come across tomorrow is going to need this. Now, this is, this is the key to this. So if our race, if our race is to get some position or title or money or thing, something we can achieve in life, whatever it is, then when we get that thing, our race is over. Your race is over. So that would be a reason somebody would be quite in trouble. That's exactly, that's exactly why I mentioned Kurt Cobain. Is, is we have taken, and by the way, we've taken this out of Christianity too, because we've made it two basic things. Uh, the moment this happened, date-oriented, day and time-oriented, and then we put all our emphasis on you're going to get to heaven someday. And so there is this, there's, if, if it's all about, well, you need to get saved. Okay, well, I got saved. Well, then the next major thing is what? You're going to die and go to heaven. Well, what about that potential 50 years in the middle? Well, I'm just going to do the best I can not to slide into a pit of horrible sin. That's it? That's the best you got? The, the way, I, you know, I picked on this. The way I heard it growing up so much was, well, if I, if I get to heaven by the skin of my teeth, then I'm okay. First, I really have a problem if you have skin on your teeth. <laughs> Brush them. The second thing is, come on, guys. There's so much better than that. Paul talks about pouring his life out as a drink offering to the Lord. And he spent it, pr pr uh, practically every moment of every day of his life after his conversion trying to get people to know Jesus, which is go back and read the first part of 1 Corinthians 9 down to where we are, and that'll give you the clue of, of some of the stuff we are talking about next week. But guys, the, the point that I, that I hope that we can walk away with and start to process and digest as we read some of this is the most important part of your life is your life. You're, you're a vessel for the Lord. He's the potter and he's making you. And that never stops, by the way. 
He's making you, and he's making you constantly. He's developing you more, and he has a plan for you, has a purpose for you. And he has a purpose for tomorrow, not just right now. Um, I, I, was, I was meeting with somebody recently, and Rick sent me a, a, a text. or something. I think it was a t- I had sent you a text, and you responded back. And the way he said it, it caught me off guard because I hadn't thought about it this way. I'm meeting with somebody because of our building and all this other stuff, and I, I sent a text to all of our staff saying, guys, pray for me. I'm meeting with this person. They knew I was meeting. And Rick sent this message back, hey, I'm praying for you, and I'm praying that the conversation will be more than just that. I'm praying that it will be a divine appointment and you can minister to them about who Jesus is. And it caught me off guard because I had not thought about that. I'm just thinking, God, help me not kill this person. (laughs) No, it really wasn't that bad. It was more like, God, give us favor because we're not getting where we need to get and we need to get there. And I thought, you know, I need to minister. And so when I got to the lunch, I really was praying about that on the way to lunch. And I'm sitting there. And, and we spent 85, 90% of the time just talking about Jesus. That, that guy began to ask me questions about my faith. About, and, and come to find, he's a Christian. Uh, wasted a lunch. But, uh, but thinking about this, guys, you have to be intentional about going into those settings to say, how can I minister to this person? Because what is the most important thing for that moment is running the race. They're the race at that moment. Your life, your existence, you have the power of God by which they can be saved. Run the race with them. Grab their hand and say, let me tell you a little bit about life and a little bit about the race and a little bit about this guy named Jesus. Because man, the race is so much better when you run it with him. Guys, the race is the importance. It's not getting to the finish line. When we get to the finish line, I believe what's going to happen, because God's nature never changes, He doesn't change, and how He has designed us does not change. I think when we step into eternity, we're going to actually see the real race. And we're going to start running the real race. But now it's going to be in perfection. It's going to be in completeness. Don't, Don't waste your life, your mind, your spirit, your energies, your resources, your mouth. Don't waste that on just running your own race. You, you'll, you'll, just like the man I mentioned two weeks ago, you'll wake up someday, you've built your barns, they're full of resources, all this stuff, and God says, you're dying tonight, and you didn't even know it. How, how wasteful is that? Guys, don't waste what God has given you. He has given you the greatest thing that you can ever have. In, in all of the world, he's given you the greatest thing, and that's you. You're the key. You're the focus. Run the race he's given you, but run it like Paul says, this is my life as a drink offering. I pour it out. So, all right, we need to pray. How are we going to pray? <clears throat> What's God stirring in your spirit? So if, so how are we going to pray about that? Somebody's got something. The Holy Spirit's telling us all stuff. Okay, God, define it for me. Show me. I, I mean, we know Scripture says God's not going to tell us a lot in the future. Specifically says that in Habakkuk 1. But he does say he'll show you the next step. Right? The steps 
of a righteous person or by God. So, so you can pray, God, what is, what is tomorrow? What is next week? But what is he going to show you? What is the most important part of the step he's going to show you? Is who you are, not what he wants you to do. What he wants you to do will naturally flow out of who you are when you, be, when you make who you are the priority. So, so that's, a, that's a major direction of prayer. Yeah. Yeah, God, help me not to waste. Whatever waste is, help me not to waste time, energy, resources, abilities, talents. Help me not waste them. Mike? Run it with endurance. So we read first is the endurance mentality. Again, you, you've heard this. this isn't a sprint, it's, it's, a, it's a marathon. You got to run it with endurance. Yes. Sir. Be more aware of his presence with every step that you take, <clears throat> because he is there with us, each and every one of us. Guys, I've been praying what he just said. I've been praying this for all of us a lot lately, more than I can verbalize. I've been praying, God, please, please help us get into your presence. And when I pray across the congregation, most of the way I do that is I walk through the seats and I pray. So if you're one of those seat movers on Sundays, you're you're getting less prayer. You got to stay in the same basic area, or I don't remember you as easy. But I just pray, God, bring them into your presence. I sent a note to my kids today and said, all my kids, five kids, two grandkids. I said, guys, you know what I want for Father's Day? I want you to fall in love with Jesus more than you've ever loved him before. More than you've ever loved him before, I want you to fall in love with Jesus. And my oldest sent me a message back that you so apropos <clears throat> he said um, he said dad the best I can do is a pair of golf socks <laughs> and I said then that'll be good enough <laughs> let's pray God we thank you for your your closeness to us. Lord, we need you so much. Lord, we need you more than we know we need you. We are more dependent upon you than we have a clue about. We need your spirit. We need your, your direction. We need your guidance. We need you to eclipse everything in our life. God, we need to know it and to pursue that. So, Lord, help us to, to shake off all the stuff. Lord, help us to, to, to say no to the sin that is so much slowing us down and the sin that's tripping us up. Help us to say no to that stuff, either, either through thought or action. Or Lord, help us to, to push away from all the things that we know are, are not drawing us closer to you and not pleasing to you. Lord, we, we need you and we want to be... We want our worship to be a beautiful fragrance to you. We want it to be in spirit and in truth. We want to draw close to you in, in uh, your word and in, and in reality of you, not of what we think. Lord, we want to run the race you've set before us. Not our, not our desire of race, but yours. We want our life to be a drink offering poured out to you in the name of Jesus. God, we need you.
we need you. Lord, I pray for every one of us here that as, as we lay our head on our pillow tonight, that we'll just drift off to sleep, worshiping you. That we'll drift off to sleep, just talking to you and telling you how much we love you. Lord, remind every one of us, remind us of that as we, as we put our head on our pillow. Remind us of this. Lord, praying in the Spirit that we drift off to sleep, praying in the Spirit. And Lord, I just thank you that you let us do this. That you let us have a relationship with you. So help us run this race the way you desire. Help us to run this race with, with commitment to you and love for you and, and with an endurance that says we're not giving up, but we're going to run harder and stronger towards you with everything that we have. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Guys, please remember, um, over these next few days, I don't think we're going to be able to have an announcement for you Sunday about all the stuff with our building. It just is, it's just muddy right now. But just be praying for us. Um, the building permit still hasn't happened. Financially, things are just going haywire, and so I'm saying building costs and stuff like that. So just be praying. God, give us direction. Give us wisdom. Um, we're going to lay out a plan for you as soon as we possibly can of what happens as soon as we get a building permit. So there, there's where we are. All right, we will see you. Have a great rest of your evening. Lay down a little bit before breakfast. <laughs>